before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. about to listen to a special preview edition of The Endgame featuring my co-host Bill Fleckenstein and our special guest, financial historian and author Edward Chancellor. Ed's new book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, is a remarkable history lesson which traces the cost of money from biblical times to the modern day experiment with negative rates. Along the way, Ed learned a wealth of lessons, some of which he shares with Bill and I as we continue our search for The Endgame. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, and the new series Shifts Happen featuring Luke Groman, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, on with the show. Edward, welcome back to The Endgame. Thanks for doing this. Um, It's been a little over a year since we last spoke. Yeah, or perhaps, was it a year and a half, two years? I can't quite remember the exact date. It was it was a while ago, but when we did speak, you told us you're in the process of writing your next book, and you you revealed the title, The Price of Time, and we both said at the time, Bill and I, that we couldn't wait to read it, and we've now had that chance, and I have to say, bravo, what an excellent, excellent book it is. Good, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and um, we can discuss some of the issues. Yeah, issues. I think that's, 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 that's the perfect way to frame this, because they are issues. Well, let, let's give people that, that don't know the background of the book, let's talk about your reason for writing it and um, kind of the impetus of that and, and what you hope to achieve by putting your thoughts down on paper. Well, after the financial crisis, I was working in Boston for GMO, the um, investment firm uh, with, with Jeremy Grantham. And two things, really. One is, you know, at the time... Obviously, the Fed had taken Fed funds rate down to close to zero, and sort of strange things seemed to be happening in the markets. And the other was as a sort of project within asset allocation team where I was working. I felt that we didn't, uh, as investors, really understand bond markets particularly well. We were sort of more equity oriented, and um, I went to see Bill and my mutual friend, Jim Grant in New York, and said to Jim, you know, are there any good books on on interest? And uh, Jim said, you know, there, there's a book by this fellow called Conard who wrote an introduction to interest in the 60s. But as Jim said, he didn't find it very useful. And then um, you know, Jim, Jim t- said, you know, well, I have been observing interest rates for 25 years. So I quipped that he hadn't been forecasting them very accurately, <laughs> which point Jim then <laughs> let off an expletive. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> as we didn't really understand interest and the financial world was um, going a bit awry, it seemed to me, you know, that in order to properly grasp what was going on in the financial world, but also 
in the economies, it, it was important to have a better understanding of interest. And that, that was really how this book got going. The title of the book, The Price of Time, is such an evocative phrase to be confronted with. And I think people don't really think about interest rates in that context, you know, because what we really are doing with them is, as you say, pricing time. And obviously the price of time for the last 10 years or so has been zero, you know, and if, and if you don't yes, have... And, a, yeah, and, and so Grant, as I mentioned, you know, there's been criticism of charging interest or what used to be called usury, um, going right back to ancient Greece and, and the philosopher Aristotle uh, was vehement in his denunciation of interest, saying that you know, money was created to be used in exchange, not to increase uh, in lending. And what I argue is that um, Aristotle, genius that he was, uh, didn't consider the time dimension. If, if, if I were to give you, you know, $100 and demand uh, $110 back immediately, that would seem a pretty unfair transaction. But if I always give you $100 and ask $110 in, in, in two years' time, it seems quite reasonable because you know, if you have that money, uh, you, if you have the use of my capital, there are things you can do with it. And besides, uh, you, might, you, you might abscond with my money, in which case I need some, <laughs> some uh, compensation for the risk I have in lending. So there are... Um, profound reasons for charging for the use of, of time, and not least of which is that all economic transactions take place over time. So the acts of lending and borrowing and valuing and investment, these are all time-related activities, and something uh, has to be put in place to make sure that that time is well used. And and that, that something is is an interest charge. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, from those early days, the the reasons around not charging interest seem to be mostly religion-based. You know, that, that mostly they came from the religious uh, scholars of the day, etc. But really, you know, modern times, I think it's obvious to any of us that have grown up in the last, let's call it, couple of centuries, that you know, time is the most valuable thing we have. So to, so to not charge for it is patently ridiculous, frankly. Well, I mean, there are two things. One is that in a primarily agricultural economy and a non-capitalist or non-industrial economy, uh, then interest charges often are excessive um, because there's no growth in the economy. Uh, and 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 they can set, you know, in, in ancient Greece, and, and across the ancient world, excessive interest charges could lead to debt, bondage, and slavery, as it can do in parts of uh, the developing world today. However, once you have a, a capitalist economy in which the loans, uh, much of the loans are going to people who are using them for profitable purposes, uh, then it's fair enough that the uh, owner of the capital should have some share in the potential profits uh, to be had from it from from its use. As you traced the, the the price of time throughout history, give us the overarching trajectory of that, because obviously we've seen interest rates, and there's that fabulous chart from Richard Siller's book of you know, five thousand years of interest rates, which, apart from a few brief spikes, have generally trended down throughout time. 
walk us through what you found. It's difficult to be you know, dead certain about the trend of interest. Uh, um, you, you mentioned that you know the famous Homer and Silla's uh, history of interest rates. What they find is in the ancient civilizations, such as Mesopotamia, where interest was first recorded in third millennium BC, is that interest rates follow a U shape. They come down, they sort of trough and continue in the trough. And then as the civilization collapses, they tend to rise quite sharply. And that was the case in, in Babylon with Greece, uh, with Rome. And you can also find it with Holland in the um, 17th and 18th century. Uh, so there is this U-shaped pattern. There is some argument that interest has been trending down. And one reason it might have been declining, uh, the more financial intermediaries you have, the more bankers, the easier it is to borrow and, and lend. That will you know, ease the friction of lending and bring down interest. However, you know, Dick Siller, you know, the co-author of the history of interest, he, he argues that there isn't really a, a genuine long-term trend. He thinks that sort of 6% <laughs> bond yield is, is the norm over time. And he also points out that in the 20th century, we saw the lowest interest rates. Well, obviously, in recent years, we've seen even lower, but we also saw the highest interest rates in history. So what you could say is that rather than a sort of long-term, secular, multi-century downward trend, we've seen um, increasing volatility of interest. And that, that's definitely come with the rise of of fiat currencies, of paper money, uh, which, um, as we all know, are inflation prone. Ed, I'm curious about one thing, or many things, but one thing in particular, and that is, in the end, in your conclusions, and the thing after the conclusions, it seemed like you were sounding an optimistic note, uh, you know, that somehow the people that had created kind of the mess that we're in now would get it right, either via digital currency or somehow the people that pursued some of these crazy ideas would maybe get religion, if you will. And I don't see any signs of that. And I don't see how we could get there without a crisis of which one seems to be brewing now. But could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so Bill, I completely agree. You know, I ended the book with a postscript, which I wrote you know, towards the end of last year. And, you know, obviously, you know, observing the extraordinary financial events that surrounded the sort of COVID lockdowns and uh, money printing and massive deficits of 2020, 2021. And then I, mean, I really end the book inciting the English economist, contemporary of Maynard Keynes, Dennis Robertson, where he says, you know, just as you know, something is needed to you know, put a price on tea or whatever commodity so that buyers and sellers know what to produce and, and what they're going to buy. And so a price is needed on money so that lenders and borrowers can transact. And the question is, in a world of fiat currencies, and, and when we talk about a fiat currency, we're really talking about a sort of slightly hybrid system in which you have both a central bank making money by you know, expanding its balance sheet or you have commercial banks that make money by lending loans. And in the modern world we live in, there is no real regulator on the amount of money that can be created. And therefore, 
the interest charge. And there is this notion mooted by um, Thomas Meyer, who's a former chief economist of Deutsche Bank. The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.